0: hello and welcome to the queen's reading room podcast the place where we invite lovers of literature to share with us their bookish confessions what are the titles they take down in moments of joy or sorrow and what treasures might we find in their own reading rooms whether that's a bedside bookstack or a full-scale library today we don our lab coats and enroll in some lessons in chemistry as we meet the woman who won Author of the Year at the 2023 British Book Awards and whose breakout book was recently adapted by Apple TV, with Brie Larson playing the lead character, Elizabeth Sott. She's also an open-water swimmer and has rode competitively. I'm Vicki Perrin, Chief Executive of The Queen's Reading Room. Join us in this episode as we step into the reading room of... Hi, my name is Bonnie Gormas. ...to explore the books she simply couldn't live without...
1: You know, uh, I wish I had a reading room in my house, but actually I live in a pretty small flat in London. And, you know, it's one of those flats where your dining room, the reception room, the kitchen and the bookcase, they're all the same room. (laughs) Um, But that's fine with me, because honestly, I can read. Anywhere, And I've always had that ability to read anywhere despite noise or, or distraction. Um, but my most favorite place to read here is in a big chair and I have a good lamp and I love it if it's raining outside. It's just very comfortable. Um, that's my favorite place. But honestly, I read all the time on the train in the tube. I have this bookcase behind me and I, I happen to love this bookcase, uh, a, because it has all the, almost all of the versions of my book lessons in chemistry in 42 languages sitting here. Um, but also because it's full of advanced reader copies, arcs of other people's books, books that have been sent to me to read, you know, books that I may not have selected myself, but. I'm so glad that somebody had, you know, the foresight to send it to me and say, maybe you should take a look at this, because that's a great way to find out about new authors and also about what existing authors are writing now. And then my main library is in Seattle, Washington, where I still have a home. I have two separate libraries there. I should say we do. Um, My whole family is a family of readers And I still have my favorite books from childhood, including the Dick and Jane series. And then I have uh, all these kids books that I saved from my own kids uh, from their childhoods. And then I just have an enormous library of books that I absolutely love. And we won't keep anything in those bookshelves unless we love it. And they're jammed. So we must love a lot. The books that you see behind me only look slightly orderly because of my husband. My husband has this strategy of putting books together who he thinks would be friends in real life. If I was arranging the shelves, which when I, I just shove books in, I never have any kind of pattern. I'm like the anti-Marie Kondo of bookshelving. You know, there's absolutely no rhyme or reason to where I will put a book. And then later I'll see that he would have moved it to be near its friend. I love adventure books. I love true life story adventure books, and I especially read anything written by a long distance swimmer. So I've read um, Adam Walker's, a favorite of mine. And when I look at my shelves, I always see man versus ocean. It always leaps out at me. Um, he is a fantastic British swimmer um, who has conquered the seas. I mean, it, his his exploits are monumental. But uh, Diana Nyad and Lewis Pugh, all of these people are kind of my heroes. And so whenever I look at my shelves, and this is because my husband is going, well, these books would be friends. I will find something by Diana Nyad next to John Krakauer into thin air because he thinks that even though she's in the water and he's in the mountains, they would be friends. I was an extremely bookish child. Um, I held the world's record at my school for longest bookworm. You know, they used to put, you read a book and they'd add another little segment to the worm and it went around the classroom and mine lapped the classroom. And I'm sure kids thought that I was just lying, but actually I had such a bad stutter as a kid. uh, I didn't talk much. And so I read a lot. And for me, uh, reading was really important. It was a means to escape. Of course, it was a way to not talk because most reading is silent, and and it just took me places that I would rather have been. And so, for me, it was really important to be a reader. And my parents started us all pretty young. Um, I'm the youngest in my family. I have three older sisters. And so being the youngest, that meant I got exposed to stories that were far more complicated than you would ever read a three-year-old, but I listened to them all. And that was really, really helpful in me developing a taste for reading. I well remember the first book I bought for myself because back then, you know, I made very little money. I had to wash windows for a penny a pain and things like that, a pence a pain. It was. And so the very first book I bought, and I can't remember the title, unfortunately, but you will recognize the author. It was Agatha Christie. Um, And I started collecting her from age seven on. And my best friend and I, um, she was also a huge reader. And so every time we had a birthday, we would give each other either two Agatha Christie's or two Nancy Drew's, and then we'd swap as soon as we were done reading. And we did that throughout our lives for 40 years. We asked Bonnie
0: about a very special book in her life, one that had a profound influence on her decision to become a writer. And the answer is just as charming as you would expect.
1: Probably the most important book in my life that actually guided me in my career was Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh. Um, I was given that book uh, for my birthday when I turned seven. And the book, it's incredible. It's highly subversive for a children's book because way back then, Louise was exploring the ideas of children questioning gender, talking about their parents divorcing, talking about real problems at school, and then you had Harriet herself who was determined to become a writer and a spy. And you know, these were not things that generally they were encouraging children to do. I was so attuned to this book that when I noticed that Harriet carried a notebook with her at all times, that's what I started doing and that's really how I became a writer, to be honest. I do have a passage from Harriet the Spy. you know, I don't have my original copy here. I have a first edition in Seattle, um, but I did find the passage that that really cemented in my brain at age seven, and I'll read it to you. It happens right at the very beginning of the book and it's about these kids and they're kind of questioning who they are going to become. Harriet pushed her hair back and looked at him seriously sport, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know what? You know, I'm going to be a ball player. Well, I'm going to be a writer. And when I say that's a mountain, that's a mountain. (laughs) Anyway, that I don't know Boy, that really nailed that in my head for the rest of my life. The books that I reach for in moments of extreme happiness or extreme sadness, oddly enough, for me is poetry. I'm not a huge poetry reader, but when it comes to emotion and when I'm having those strong emotions, I invariably will read something by Ocean Biong or I'll read Ada Limon or Kate Bauer, someone like that, sometimes Walt Whitman, um, all sorts of people, because there's something about poetry for me, it's so distilled. It's so rich, you don't have to read very much, you instantly get transported. Sometimes I feel like I've been mended. That's often what I will go for. And it's really interesting to me. Oddly enough, there's one other book I go for all the time, which is, this is going to sound weird. It's Atomic Habits by James Clear. And he has written this book about how you develop better habits in your life so you can accomplish more in your life and not feel depressed about not accomplishing things. And there's just something about the very simple wisdom and these habits that you can develop in this book that really resonate for me. And sometimes they'll put me right back on track. The book that I would take with me wherever I happen to go is Harriet the Spy, I have it on my Kindle just in case. And then um, I also carry a copy of Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Um, you know, I use Marcus Aurelius ideas of stoicism in my book, Lessons in Chemistry, to round out my character of Elizabeth Zott because Marcus Aurelius believed in questioning, logic, rationality, and leading a life of decency. And I really, a lot of the stuff that he writes about still resonates very strongly for me. So those two books I have on Kindle, but I also have paperback, hardback, et cetera, et cetera. I have every kind of copy you can have.
0: Like many of us, Bonnie has experienced a reading slump in her life when no book really seemed to speak to her from the author's heart. Until she found the right book, that is, which brought the joy of reading back into her life.
1: There was a time in my life where I struggled to read and it's really interesting to me. I've heard from so many readers reading my book who said they had hit a wall of reading, you know, they had just been bored or underwhelmed or whatever, and they just didn't want to read. And I found that too. My reading was stopped in the year 2002 or somehow what happened was I was reading a lot of books that people were saying you should read and they just didn't resonate with me. Um, they felt like they were all manufactured at in some MFA program, which is a Master's of Fine Art in the United States. Um, it felt like they were manufactured in a workshop instead of coming from the author's heart. They seemed um, self-absorbed to me somehow and boring, just absolutely boring. And I finally, I you know, I'm I'm just going to have to stop reading, and then. <laughs> Which I would never do, but I really felt that way. But then in 2012, Maria Simple came out with Where'd You Go, Bernadette? And I read that book in one sitting and it just wiped the slate clean. You know, she broke through all these barriers. She's hilarious. I absolutely love her. And that book Um, just took the world by storm. And I I think that she completely deserved it. And I know that she rebooted reading for a lot of people who are in my rut. I'm betting there are about 10% of the books on my shelves I have never read. You know, sometimes you you go to the bookstore and you go, "This, this looks really great. And then you just never get to it. It's almost like a passing fancy. However, I will say, That no matter, this was so true for so long for me, I would start a book and even if I didn't like it, I would finish it. And I would finish it because I thought, well, this author has gone to all this trouble to write this book and it's my duty to finish it. That is our contract. And then one day, and I won't mention what book this was, one day, this is years ago, I was reading a book and I was literally saying to anyone who would listen, I I can't, I just can't get into this book. I don't like it at all. And I just kept going. And my husband said, you know, you're not actually required by law to finish it. And by not finishing it, you could move on to some author, other author who deserves your attention. And I went, that's not the contract between reader and writer. And he said, there is no contract. Anyway, sure enough, I did not finish that book. And it felt like this, wow, I can not finish and that's okay. No one came to arrest me. I never heard from the writer. It was fine. Um, But I will still, even if I'm not enjoying a book, I'll read at least half of it to make sure.
0: As always, we can't help asking our guests about their next project. And although Bonnie remains secretive here, she gives the Queen's Reading Room some interesting clues about where her research is taking her next
1: I am writing another book right now, but I don't have an outline or anything. I go down lots of different roads and avenues, and I made the mistake on one podcast of telling someone what my book was about. And it's not about that anymore, but I can tell you that right now I'm reading a book on how birds build bird nests. Now, whether or not this will figure into my book, I'm not completely sure, but I am absolutely fascinated by the architecture of bird's nests, and it has got me thinking about all sorts of different things and that's sort of how I write and read, where you you take these connections from all sorts of disparate sources, and then you see how they're interconnected, and you see how, in a way, we're connected to the wider world. And so right now, it's bird birdness. But about my book, yeah, I can't really say. <laughs> I think it is so important to read, especially now, more than ever in the history of humankind, literally, especially now, is because we are far too dependent on video, phones, TV. All of that is very passive. And reading is very active. And reading literally changes your brain. It literally helps you manufacture white matter. And if you don't have enough white matter, especially as a child, it directly affects your IQ. If you don't keep reading as an adult past age 30, your white matter starts to deteriorate. And that's one of the reasons why we see high incidences of brain damage, like, you know, things like, like Alzheimer's Um, maintaining white matter is just like exercise, except the best way to maintain it is through reading. But really the other great thing about reading and why it's so important is that it's the great equalizer, you know, You can go to a library for free and read almost anything in that library. And you don't have to spend a dime, but the entire world is laid out for you. That's the only place it can happen is in a library. And I just find that this remarkable gift that keeps on giving throughout the ages, the libraries are still with us and they're still with us for a very, very good reason.
0: We heard there that Bonnie Garmus became a fan of the inimitable Agatha Christie when she was a child. It will be no surprise that Her Majesty the Queen also adores Christie's novels and chose to celebrate her life and legacy on the Queen's Reading Room Book Club. In this clip, we talk to the wonderful Richard Osman about his love of all things Christie and how Miss Marple in particular inspired his own detective fiction.
2: It's impossible to be a crime writer in Britain, probably anywhere in the world and not be inspired by Agatha Christie because she was the greatest and so many things that we take for granted now so many story structures, unreliable narrators, cold cases, all sorts of things you know, she was doing them all first and doing them all best I think if you grew up in Britain and you're in a tiny village uh, your thoughts always turn to murder the Thursday Murder Club for example, my mum lives in a retirement community uh, and I'm sitting there and it's lovely and the birds are singing and the sun is shining and you know there's beautiful forests and lakes and all sorts of things and because I come from a background of Agatha Christie my first thought is this is so beautiful so tranquil so genteel I bet there's going to be a murder anytime soon and that's where Thursday Murder Club comes from so you know I have I have Agatha Christie to thank for that uh, initial inspiration I think. My third book, uh, The Bullet That Missed, there's no Christie tricks in there, but in in the book I'm currently writing, I had a really, what I thought was a really neat trick a really neat trick. And when you're writing a book, this character and story and personality and all that kind of stuff, but you want just a couple of little things in there where you think, oh, people are gonna love that. People won't have seen that before. And I was rereading um, an old uh, Christie last month uh, and she does the same trick. And I was like, of course she did the same trick. I was so proud of myself. I was really thinking, mate, you've you've done it again. Where do you get your ideas from? Uh, And of course, where I got my idea from was uh, Agatha Christie. I love having septuagenarians as my detectives, as my heroes, in the same way as Miss Marple. And I'll tell you why I think it works perfectly. I think that, you know, culturally, um, when people get above 70, they they tend to disappear in our culture. They tend to become invisible. And if if not invisible, certainly underestimated is definitely the case. And lots of older people will will tell you that. There comes a point where suddenly you think, well, they don't exist anymore. So you've got this group of people who are underestimated and invisible. And yet they're at a stage of their life where they've accumulated more wisdom than they've ever had before. They've seen it all. You know, any trick you can play has been played on them. You know, they've seen every type of character. So you've got these people who are incredibly wise, but also invisible. Uh, And as Agatha Christie knew, uh, and as I've really taken advantage of, that makes the perfect detective, wise and invisible. You can't do better than that. I hope that Agatha Christie would have loved the Thursday Murder Club gang. I mean, listen, it's not for me to say, is it? She's she's probably sitting here going, that's a bit derivative of me, mate. Uh, I think she would have loved it. It's very much in, in, in the vein of Christie. I've always loved Christie because people sort of, they sort of think that what she's writing is a cozy crime. I think this is what she would see in Thursday Murder Club, that it's sort of wrapped up like it's a cozy, genteel little crime. But as soon as you get under it, it's about people and it is about evil and it's about bad things happening. And that's what Christie was brilliant at. Uh, So I think I would have got her attention, that's for sure. And I think that she would have realized that I was doing the same trick, which is pretending something is cozy and then hitting people with with, with, with a big juicy murder mystery. It's so hard to choose One's favorite, Agatha Christie. You'd have to go a long way to beat The Murder of Roger Ackroyd for the reasons that people uh, who have read it will know. I think the greatest plot of all time is probably And Then There Were None. And, you know, Christie's about far more than plot. We talk about her her skill with plots a lot, and she is brilliant with it. But she's also brilliant at characterization and personality. But if you want to talk about um, a plot that works like a Swiss watch and just takes you by surprise, then uh, you can't beat And Then There Were None. It's fascinating to me that uh, the Thursday Murder Club has taken me all over the world. So it's it's, it's released in like sixty countries, and you know, it's it's, it's a hit in Japan and Brazil and China, uh, you know, and America, Germany. I I never do an interview abroad where someone doesn't mention Agatha Christie. Never. If it's China, if it's Brazil, wherever you are, they mention Agatha Christie. And that's because she wrote a genre that is popular. Crime fiction has always been popular, always will be, because of its very nature. We're solving a puzzle, which people love. But she was so much more than that, because she was writing about psychology, and she was writing about good and evil. So she sets us a puzzle, but she also tells us something about the world we live in. Uh, And it's very, very hard to think of any novelist in, uh, you know, literary uh, circles who can do exactly that you know she plays the game but she also gives us beautiful insight
0: as you know in each episode of this podcast we put a question to the queen about her own reading room and today's is surely one that any reader often daydreams about we asked your majesty may invite a selection of dead authors to a dinner party Who's on the guest list? Well, I've I've
3: thought long and hard about this one because it would be huge. But if I kept it small, I'd have to have Oscar Wilde. I'd probably put in Evelyn Waugh as well. Then I was so sad when Elizabeth Jane Howard died and um, I'd just written to her saying how much I'd loved her last book. I said, I just hope you're going to continue. I let her back saying, yes, the next one's being done. And then she died the next week. So I've always wanted would loved to meet her and, and say, what were, you, what were you going to do next? And then i would real curiosity. I'd have to put in Dickens and probably Jane Austen as well. It'd just be interesting to see how they all got along with one another and if what well, they brought out in one another. But, I, I mean, I could think of a lot more, but, I, you know, it's a sort of um, a nucleus, I'd like to have that lot.
0: Sadly, that is just about all we have time for. Just before we go, let's hear a favourite line of literature from one of our guardians of this nation's reading rooms, Community Services Officer Rosie from Yatton Library best moments in reading are when you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things, you thought special, particular to you. And here it is, set down by someone else, a person you've never met, maybe even someone long dead. From the History Boys by Alan Bennett. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Queen's Reading Room podcast. We're a charity on a mission to spread the joy of books and reading. You can find out more about what the Queen is reading and what she recommends by joining her book club on Instagram at The Queen's Reading Room or by checking out our website, thequeensreadingroom.co.uk, for more fabulous literary treasures. See you next time when we chat with children's author and screenwriter Frank Cottrell-Boyce.